morning again, and thank you for being here on this special day with our special guest speaker. A little background information on our speaker. Um, born in New York, Yankees fan. <laughs> but, but he did go to Connecticut in high school, and from there he met his sweetheart, his wife, Corey, here with us, who is from Connecticut, so she's more of a New Englander than he is. But anyway, <laughs> we'll let that go. <laughs> so they live now in Michigan, so no stranger to cold weather and snow. Um, that was our question as a search team, too, is like, why would you want to come to New England? We ask everyone that because of our weather. <laughs> but they love New England, so uh, even better. So just welcome uh, Chris as he comes to uh, share God's word with us. And uh, let me pray for you. Thanks, Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for this blessed day. Thank you for the travel and safety that you've uh, given this couple, Lord, to bring, us, bring them here. And thank you for uh, Chris graciously offering to come um, preach to us. Uh, and Lord, may our hearts and minds now be settled and open uh, for God's touch in our lives. And uh, may whatever the Holy Spirit has for us, we take with us today and apply it in our lives and to this world that really needs it. In Jesus' name, we give praise and thanks. Well, it's great to be with you all. It's been, uh, I really just want to thank all the people that have, uh, we've interacted with the last couple days who have given us a warm New Hampshire welcome, and it is good to be here. Hey, I don't know if you have your, your Bible, and if you want to open up to Mark chapter 10, or you get your phone, you want to open up your app. We're going to take a look at what God has to say in Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these have I have kept since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. He said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands 
with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you that you are alive and that you are moving in our world today, and we thank you for the grace and the privilege it is to exalt you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to know you as our Savior, our Christ. Thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken, God. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord God, that you would open our eyes to see the excellency of your goodness and your grace. Lord God, we have read your word. We pray, Lord, now that you would speak and that you would change and transform us, Lord God, and make us more into a people that reflect your image, your likeness, and your glory to the world around. In Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, there are times in life, I think, when you need to realize your inability before you'll ask for help. That's why YouTube was created, right? (laughs) There are times in life when you need to realize how trapped you are before you can be truly set free. I was thinking about that this week. Um, Okay, so, you know, I like action movies, and, you know, they're filming Matrix 4, and I was all going all the way back to the first Matrix, you know, at the pivotal moment when, you know, uh, Lawrence Fishburne offers him the red pill and the blue pill. And even if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably heard of that. Do you want the red pill or the blue pill? And he says to him, I can't show you, give you the freedom that you're looking for until you realize you're in bondage. What are you going to take? Dynamic happens all the time in real life, and on some level, I think we see it in this text. Jesus shows people how trapped they are so that he can give them the freedom that they really hunger for. He shows them the depth of their inability to save themselves so that he can offer them grace. And if you're a note taker, I think we're going to look at three things this morning. First thing we see is the trap. Second thing we see is the gift. Third thing we see is the reward, trap. Jesus and disciples are walking along the road when this wealthy young man comes up. And and as you you read the text, maybe did you see there's this earnestness about him, isn't there? there? There is this hunger, there is this engagement on the part of this young man, right? He runs to Jesus. He doesn't just kind of casually stroll along. He's running, right? He gets down on his knees. He bows down before Jesus. This is no chance encounter. You know, he went out, I mean, I mean, he's a gracious stalker. You know, <laughs> he went out looking for Jesus that day. He was going to find him. He's a young man with spiritual questions. And maybe some of you have had that in your lives. You've, you, you've had that moment where all of a sudden something broke through regardless of your background and you thought there has to be some reason we're here. There has to be some why behind my daily existence. I cannot simply be a cosmic accident. There's got to be something more than matter plus time plus chance in my life. Maybe you were confronted with the beauty and the wonder of the world. Maybe it was a moment where all of a sudden there was this coherence to things. A moment when you all of a sudden said, I, I want to know what is truth. A moment like this man is, is inhabiting. That moment where the existential questions of life, you know, what is true? Is there a God? Who is he? Is there eternal life? How can I have it? Those questions move past kind of a Starbucks coffee conversation to a matter that you just had to know. And, and when you have those questions in that moment, you don't walk, you run. You run looking for answers. You run for truth. You're chasing it. 
This young man was chasing Jesus, even if he didn't know it. So, and he gets down and he bows, good teacher. And it's this wonderful moment of Jesus, right, where Jesus meets him with the questions he asks. And, and, and if you're always hungering, how do I be better at sharing the good news? I love looking at Jesus here. He meets him where he's at, but he doesn't answer him head on right off the bat. Jesus always kind of comes around the side and go, goes for his heart and leads people where he needs to take them. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is going to show him how trapped he is so that he can give him freedom. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See what Jesus is doing? On the one hand, it's an implicit statement about his divinity, but it's more than that. As the conversation proceeds, we get the sense that this young man is looking for a checklist. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for a list, a formula, a set of virtues by which he can earn his way to heaven. And you get the sense he's a good guy. I mean, this is the kind of guy I want is my neighbor, right? He pays his taxes. He calls his mom on her birthday. When, when he sees that you dropped your wallet in the Walmart parking lot, he goes and picks it up and gives it to you. You actually like want to hug this guy, virus or no virus. He's a good guy. And there's this honestness about him. Again, I would say he's kind of the good New Englander. When pressed... And you say, do you think, why do you think you can go to heaven? He's going to say, because I've tried to live a good life. And on a horizontal level, he absolutely has. He's tried to live a good life. But look at Jesus. He shows him how trapped he is. No one is good except God alone. If no one is good except God, then trying to be good enough to earn eternal life is a trap. If you're trying to say, okay, I'm hoping that my life is a scale, and you know, sometimes I do bad things, and sometimes I do good things, but if I can just do enough good things that the good side wins out, if that doesn't work, then living that way is a cosmic spiritual trap. And, and, and some of you may know what it feels like when you're trying to live that way, where you're thinking, okay, I think I can be good enough to merit eternal life. You know, if you really try to live that, then every time you stumble is this moment of incredible defeat. Instead of experiencing the godly grief by virtue of the Holy Spirit, we get crushed with that worldly grief that just makes us walk around and feel like, I, I just can't do this. You lose hope to press on. If you struggle with anxiety and you believe you need to be good enough to enter into heaven, you will be riddled with insecurity and doubt. Because you'll, you'll never know if the scales are tipped enough in your favor. And the certainty with which your heart is hungering will ever be ephemeral. But if no one is good except God alone, everything changes. We don't need a, li a list to complete. We need grace to receive Jesus shifts, the answer, Jesus shifts to answer the young man's question while drawing him towards this realization that he is more trapped than he can possibly imagine. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And I, and I love the young man, right? All these I have obeyed since I was a youth. 
Six specific old commands Jesus gives them. All these I've obeyed. And I think we have to be careful. If you're like me, the first thing I, I think when I read that, all these I've obeyed since my youth is I want to go, really? Really? But it's really interesting. Again, you always got to look. Jesus doesn't go Sermon on the Mount to him right here. I want to go Sermon on the Mount to him because I'm looking to justify myself. But Jesus doesn't. So, so we don't know whether or not he's, 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 how good he's done on those since he was a boy. But here's what we can be sure of, that the text is very clear to tell us. Jesus loves him. And the state and the, seat, the, the moment that, that, that we are told he loves him was of remarkably great importance. At the moment that text says Jesus looked at him and loved him, this man had not yet made a profession of faith. This man was still living in the world where he thought he could earn his salvation. And at that moment, with, with the wrath of God still hanging over him, in his sins, thinking he could be good enough, Jesus looked at him and says, I love this guy. And that is actually very important for those of us who are already in Christ to remember when we see people who do not love Jesus and they are really angry and vocal and loud to remember that Jesus at that moment when still looks at them and says, I love them. I love them. He loves this guy. And friends, we need to see it because it takes us right into the incredible heart of God. Jesus does not start loving people when they get their acts together pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps and start being an exemplary husband, father, child, neighbor, co-worker. That is not the moment when Jesus says, now I'm going to love you. Jesus does not start loving people when their theology is perfect and all their T's are crossed and their I's are dotted. Jesus did not stand before us with this clipboard doing a kind of moral inventory like he's the great spiritual quality assurance specialist. No offense. <laughs> Waiting until we've been approved before he can throw his arms around us. Jesus loves us when we are still a mess of sin and confusion. And he loves us, and he loves us in that moment because he wants to draw us into a life-giving relationship with himself. And he loves us enough that he doesn't want to leave us there. Sometimes we talk about people who are seeking God, but in this moment, even though it's this young man ran up to Jesus, fell before Jesus' feet, we watch the way the encounter goes, and we are quickly reminded Jesus was seeking him before he got up that morning. And, and, and Jesus is on a hunt for his heart right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but eternal life, John 3.16. It's really amazing, too, because if, if you read the Gospel of John and you want to do a word study, look at every time the, the, the word, the world, comes up in the Gospel of John, and it's always describing a world in hostility to God. And so again, here God is in the moment when we, when, when the world, when we, when we are hostile. He's looking and saying, but I love you and want to redeem you. Jesus is not like anyone else we encounter this side of heaven. He looks at us when we're still angry and in rebellion. He says, oh, I just love you so much. I want to draw you to myself. But to do this, he's got to expose the trap the young man is living in, just like he has to expose the traps we are living in that keep us in rebellion. And with this man, it's his wealth. Jesus tells him, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And then come and follow me. 
And it's really interesting. Again, if, if you're a thoughtful reader in that moment, you might be thinking, well, is this a universal command? Hmm. Are we all supposed to sell all of our possessions? Is God anti-wealth? Anti what, what does this mean? Is this, is this story about him or is it about us? So let's pause there for a second. That's a really good question. Well, I think we can say God makes universal statements that we should care for the poor. I think there's enough universal statements on that in the scriptures, right? We could look at what is it, Acts chapter 15, the letter to, um, from the, the apostles to Paul and the church. But remember the poor, right? We could look at other examples. I think there are these universal commands that we should care for the least of these. However, there are plenty of people in the scriptures that are wealthy. Most scholars would say Matthew, the tax collector, was, as a tax collector, was wealthy. And Jesus says to him, follow me. He doesn't have that preface, go sell all of your possessions and give all to the poor and follow me. He just says, follow me, right? We have the example of Philemon. Philemon was a man who was wealthy enough. He had a home, you know, large enough. The entire church met in his home. So if he would have sold all of his possessions, that probably couldn't have happened. Right? So there, there are numerous Old Testament figures who are blessed with wealth. That is, in fact, a sign of their blessing. So God doesn't call all believers at all times and all places to give away all of their wealth and give it to the poor, but he does call some to, like this man, because God is principally concerned with our heart. And this man's love of wealth has become a trap. Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. You see how Jesus has moved from six of the other Ten Commandments to the First Commandment? Remember what the First Commandment says? I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The moment that this young man walks away, it becomes clear that he doesn't own his money. His money owns him. His money owns him. You can feel this earnestness, right? That's what I've been talking really fast about. You can feel this earnestness, this hunger in his heart, right? He runs, he bows, he exalts. He wants it. I've obeyed that. You feel it. This is not someone who's apathetic. This is a young man. This is a, he is hungry. He wants eternal life. This is serious for him. Just I think part of the reason Jesus is like, I love this guy. Love him. You feel the earnestness of his soul. And then in that moment, Jesus says, great, this is what you got to give up. And he's like, no. No. He can't do it. He wants to live with God forever. But when Jesus tells him what to do, he refuses. It's just a good moment, right? When we worship Jesus, right? We remember that we worship, I don't have something small. We worship Jesus. Everything we have, we have to worship him with an open hand. Our family, our vocation, our wealth, everything we come before him, we say, it's an open hand, it's yours. You give and you take away. You call me to give it away. You call me to keep it. It's yours. And this man, though, his wealth is in this closed fist. I'll give you everything, but I'm not gonna, I'm, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. And some of us, you, you know, you've been there. 
Praise God for his grace. You've been there in that moment where you're close-fisted, and it's the grace in this moment where Jesus says, let it go. I really like Tim Keller. Um, writes, quote, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would be to lose himself. To lose his money would be to lose himself. He didn't own his money. His money owned him. And while he walks away discouraged, it's worth remembering that we don't know how his story ends. There are other examples. We could look at Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, right? Jesus says some very hard things to him. He walks away into the night only to show up at the end of John's Gospel. Now publicly, a public follower. Sometimes, you know, in our lives, we, we tell someone else the hard thing, and in that moment, it does not go well. But that's not always the end of the story. Because God is always on the move. Just like he's on the move in this man's heart. Jesus loves him enough to tell him the hard truth. You will never lay hold of God's grace until you realize the depth of your need for it. You'll never embrace true gospel freedom unless you realize I am in a trap and I can't save myself. I need him. Brings us. Point number two, the gift. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone to enter than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. Then who can be saved? With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I love seeing the gift in action. So first century, right? The the disciples, again, they're the disciples. They're following Jesus. Ready? Their theology isn't yet perfect. Because we see in this text two false ideas that were prevalent in the first century, just like they're prevalent today, 21st century America, right? First one, prosperity theology. Comes right out of the mouth of, of, of the disciples. Jesus says, a rich, you know, a rich, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what does it say? They were, quote, amazed. Jesus is breaking their categories. Because there is this idea in, prevalent in first century Judaism that if you are obeying God, he will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you are disobeying God, he will punish you. You see, you, again, I think you see it, is it... Um, John 5? I don't know. Don't quote me on that. You see it in John, right? When they come upon the man born blind. And the disciples, again, in their great theological astuteness, say, who sinned, this man or his parents? God was born blind. It's, it's, it's like that, that line in the movie Willow. Who's to blame? Someone, this is someone's fault. This guy is born blind. Whose fault is it? And what does Jesus say? Neither but to bring glory to God. Same way, you know, and again, there's churches that do this today. This is popular. I was in, you know, we worked in Georgia for a while. There's a popular church in Georgia where um, the preacher in a very nice suit, I will say, 
I liked his suit. He would get up and, and, and he would say, I remember when he said, you are not fully sanctified. If you are not driving a car with as much as at least a Ford Expedition, you are not fully sanctified. I kind of felt good about myself because we were driving a Ford Expedition. But, <laughs> but, but sometimes we, we believe this today, right? Sometimes, God, wealth is, sometimes wealth is a blessing from God. Absolutely. And yet some, sometimes the blessing from God is the persecution the verse talks about later. Or Paul's thorn in his flesh. What does Jesus tell Paul? I am going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that is a blessing. For my great, for um, my strength is made perfect in his weakness. Second false trap we see this morning is what we've been talking about most of the morning. Jesus, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Or for, or he makes that, but then he also makes it just a universal statement. How hard it is for anyone to be saved, right? And I love, I love Jesus because here he's taking the largest animal they've ever seen and the smallest hole they've ever seen. <laughs> and he's saying, imagine this going through that. And what does it say? They were exceedingly, quote, astonished. I love Jesus. Jesus is like, he's just breaking down category after category because it is so easy then and today for us to think, if I can just believe the right things, if I can just say the right things, if I can just do the right things, it'll be enough. We want to believe that. It feels kind of American, right? I can do this. And Jesus has just showed them that entrance into the kingdom of God is more impossible than they dared to imagine. But then he shows them the love of God is greater than they dared to believe. Greater than they dared to believe. What's impossible for them is possible for God. The only way to enjoy eternal life is as a gift. And the sooner that they rid themselves of the crushing burden of trying to earn their way into God's good graces, the sooner they will enjoy the extravagance of God's love and grace. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, if you're not a Christian today, I, I hope you see how good the grace of God is. Because I think I've, talk, I've talked to some wonderful people and, and who have been very honest, and they've told me, God would never let me in if he knew what I had done. And to which I often respond, well, well hey, I think he knows. He was there. But, but they're serious. There's this hard feeling. He, if he knew what I thought, what I did, what I said, they, he'd never let me in. Gosh, I can remember one we, my wife and I we were buying a used car. Um, actually, we were buying a Ford Expedition. And... Um, I remember, you know, the guy said, if I walked into a church, I'd just explode in flames. Well, that would be a picture none of us want to see. But that's not how it is. If it's by grace we've been saved, then no matter who you are or what you've seen or what you have done or said, there is a place for you at the table through the cross of Jesus Christ. His grace is greater than your sin. His grace is enough. And if we are all saved by sheer grace, that means that you are no less, you have the opportunity to be no less part of the family of God 
than the person who was saved at seven at a Christian camp and memorized Bible verses in Awana their whole teenage life. As some have said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you're not a Christian, the grace of God is your hope, strength, and joy. And if you are a Christian, it will ever be your hope, strength, and joy. One of the things I've noticed as a pastor over the years is there's a lot of us that when we first get saved, we embrace the fact that it's grace. We say, he forgave me. Yes. But then the more time that goes on, it's easier for us to stray from resting in that grace that saved us to trying to rest in our own performance. Right? And so then all of a sudden we stumble as we will inevitably do and we are crushed. And we say, I should be so much further than I am today. How could God ever forgive me? I don't deserve his grace. And let me gently tell you, you don't. And that's what makes it so good. You didn't deserve it the moment you said, here I am, save me. And you don't deserve it today. And that's okay. Because he knew. And he loved you while you were still in your sins. And he loves you today. Great. Salvation is from grace from first to last. I love the hymn writer, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Towards the end of his life, he was interviewed, and, and he said, um, two things I have learned from a life, you know, life with, after decades with God. Two things I have learned. I am a great sinner. Present tense. And Christ is a great Savior. Present tense. <laughs> God's got to show us how trapped we are so he can give us the freedom we hunger for. But it doesn't stop there. The reward. And here, I, I wish I had like 25 more minutes. But I don't. But I love this section of Scripture. See, we have left everything and followed you. I love Peter. You know, we, sometimes we give Peter bad rap because he opens his mouth really quickly. You know what I mean? P- P- Peter is that, you know, the disciple, you know, fire, ready, aim. You know, but... but but you love Peter because honestly, I really think Peter's the guy that asks the questions that we all want to ask, but we're afraid to. If you're an introvert, you love guys like Peter. Because you sit there and go, oh good, I'm so glad someone else said that. I hope, I hope they're not embarrassed. I know I'm not. That's Peter, right? And, and I just, I have to believe this question he's asking is on all of their minds. I know it's on my mind when I read the text with a fresh set of eyes. Imagine yourself You're sitting there, you're watching this rich young man walk away. He he wouldn't let go. He's walking away. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, Jesus just said, we can't do it. It's all grace. But look at what we've done. Matthew's sitting there thinking, Jesus, I was at work Jesus said, follow me. I got up, I left my job, I left the money on the table, and I walked out and followed him. Peter's sitting there thinking, I left my boat. (laughs) I left my, I mean, imagine being an electrician, and you're there in the van that you own with thousands and thousands of dollars of tools, and Jesus walks up and says, follow me, and you just drop the keys in in the floor, and you follow him. 
I mean, you know, I rag on the disciples and I'm in awe of the disciples all at once. And so I can imagine they're sitting there and they're thinking, okay, well, so it's all grace. Is there a, Jesus, do you care about our faithfulness? Is there a, do you notice our meager attempts at faithfulness? Do you notice the cost we pay to follow you? We've left everything to follow you. Does that matter? If you, you, if you love us enough to save us by grace, does that mean, this is the lie that's easy to think, does that mean that you are indifferent to the cost of discipleship as it affects our lives? I think that's the question there Peter's asking. Perhaps you've had a moment in your life where you've thought the same thing. Jesus says, follow me in some way, and you follow. And particularly if you follow and everything falls apart, then you're asking this question. You follow, you get sick. You follow someone around, loves you, and get sick. Jesus calls you to do something. You have these high hopes, and it becomes a mud pile. You're thinking, what is going on? I followed. Does he notice? Jesus, notice how he reassures them. Salvation is a gift of grace, but God rewards our faithfulness exerted in his name. He rewards our good works exerted in his name. His grace and his love go that far. God notices those who have left homes and families to take the gospel around the world, and he says, I'm going to reward you for that. God notices those who have sent their families around the world for the sake of the gospel, and he says, I notice, I'm going to reward you for that. God notices those of us who've had the scary moment to say, I'm going to share the gospel with a person at the locker next to mine, and I'm afraid, and I'm nervous, and I'm afraid of losing the relationship, but I'm going to do it anyway. And God says, I love you for that. 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. God knows what we need before we ask. God notices the person. I talked to a brother just last week, and he told me how he was selling his car to give the money to someone else in need. Selling a Mercedes. God notices, and he says, I'm going to reward that. God notices. He promised to bless those who wisely use their talents. What does he say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I will give you much. Well done. He promises to reward the woman in Saudi Arabia who puts her faith in Christ and her family throws her out. And he says, I'm going to give you a family. And this is what I, love. I wish I had time to talk about more. The power of the church to be God's instrument to reward and bless believers who have faithfully followed him. Notice how the blessing and the reward in this particular text comes through the church and the church's love and support and care. And in Jesus' mind, in this verse, the church is supposed to be something that the world cannot begin to give you, which is why when the church is the church, it is the most powerful apologetic in the universe. I would rather have a church living out the call of God to be the church God has in mind than to have the best apologetic arguments. Because you can't explain away the grace of God as it is lived out among us. My favorite writer says, the church can become the gospel made visible. Love it. 
promises to reward the person in New England who is jeered by their family for putting their faith in Christ. As I'm sure in this room this big some of you have been. God notices all of the crosses and the losses. And he says they matter to me. And I will reward you for them. What's God saying to you this morning? There is no one like Jesus. Because Jesus is the true rich young ruler in this text. Right? He is the one who came from heaven to live the perfect life that we cannot live, to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sins, so that he might give us freedom, life, grace, that he might adopt us into his family. Jesus came for us. 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, by his poverty, you might become rich. That is the grace of God. The love of God for us, no matter where we are or where we have been or what we have done, the grace of God that says, I am enough. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would fill us afresh with an experience of your grace and your mercy and love. God, help us to believe it. Help us to rest in it. Help us, God, those of us who have lost much to find hope and strength in your love and your power to strengthen and reward us in this life or in the life to come. God, bless us so much with the awareness and experience of your love and grace that we would find strength to love those who are hard to love, to give grace to those who need it, and to reflect your perfect image to a hurt and broken world that needs to see it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.